0: All right, so um, understanding the, the offspring. Um, I'm kind of jumping into, and sorry, I have an outline on the back on that little podium. Um, um, I forgot I was teaching Sunday school until this morning, um, and so you, that's all you get is an outline. Um, and so going back to what I was talking about two weeks, just the, the overarching understanding of Scripture, Right? We see that in, three, in four acts: creation, rebellion, redemption and restoration. And um, I, I talked about specifically Genesis 3:15 as the promise of God's covenant of grace, that he would in response to humanity's sin and rebellion, he promised to provide a deliverer. To undo the effects of that sin, the, this is what we call the Proto Evangelion, the the first gospel was preached in Genesis three fifteen. But I, I actually want us to take a step back. Actually, I want to. I meant to ask this. Did anyone read pages thirteen through seventeen for this week? Gold star, gold star, great. Um, And so, um, I love what whoever wrote this, wrote this, who wrote this, Poithras, Um, I love what he did here, he gave a great snapshot of understanding the offspring, so this promise in Genesis 3.15, that this seed, that this offspring is the one to come, that through this offspring God is going to redeem all of his creation, not just his people, but all of his creation through this promised one. Um, but I, I'm going to go a little bit more into the weeds, um, and I hope you're excited because that's where we're going. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 1. I'm not going to look at all these um, pa- passages; we don't clearly don't have time. But turn with me to Genesis 1:26 to 28. Many of you might know that this is this is one of the greatest statements of all of Scripture. It it gives us our identity. Right, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 reveals humanity's identity as God's creatures made in his image prior to the fall. So this 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 passage is what all humanity is longing to fulfill because this passage reveals why we were created. Right? So Genesis 1:26 through 28. God said, Let us make man in our image and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, we we learn we learn a vast number of things. I'm going to summarize this very quickly. God decided to create man in a special way. He created man in his image. He created man male and female, both of them perfectly reflecting God's image as their being. Right? Then he gave man and woman, a job. The first job is to fill the earth and multiply it. So, if this, I'm jumping, this is just a thought of mine. If you ever wonder why, and I've t- said this before, if you ever wonder why um, man is forbidden to make an image, a carved image of man of the Ten Commandments, is because God has already done it. By filling the earth with the offspring, we are actually multiplying God's image throughout the earth. That is why man is forbidden to make an image of God and worship, because God has already done it in man. So we are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. We're commanded to have dominion. We are supposed to work from the very beginning. If we do not work, we are not fulfilling our creational mandate as human beings. Right? So but uh, so but for this morning my, my main point is that we are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, we are supposed to fill the earth with God's creation, and so it makes sense that once we get to Genesis three fifteen, that God is now going to redeem fallen man. Right in chapter in Genesis chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three or chapter three, we see this rebellion. Man decides, I don't want to fulfill verses twenty six through twenty eight. I want to do it my own way. And so God curses the serpent, God curses the woman, God curses man. and But in those curses, he gives them this promise of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then we come to Cain and Abel, Right? the ramifications of Adam and Eve's sin is immediately recognized in the narrative of Scripture because Cain kills Abel, right? That's the story. Cain killed Abel. And so by definition, Cain, in a biblical hermeneutic understanding how to interpret Scripture, Cain immediately becomes what? He becomes a seed of the serpent he's the cursed one and this is what we see that happens to Cain he becomes cursed and then we're told in Genesis 4 verses 25 to 26 that Adam knew his wife again and they bore a son named Seth and God appointed him to be an offspring of Abel for Cain killed him so Seth was born and then he had children And they came to call upon the name of the Lord. So immediately after this murder between Cain Cain killing Abel, Cain is identified from there on out in this narrative of the scripture as the seed of the serpent. And we have Abel who continues the seed of the promise. So through this one seed, through this one child, God's redemptive purposes will come for all of his people. Ever wonder why all the there's all the genealogies in Genesis? They could be giving us a historical account, and I think they are giving us a historical account, but we cl- clearly believe that there are some generations left out. If we look at the age, and the, um, never mind, never mind, never mind. The genealogies are there so we can track the lineage of the seed of this offspring. From the very beginning of Genesis 1, they're supposed to fill the earth. And from Genesis 3.15, we have this divergent of these two seeds, these two offspring. One brings cursing, one brings blessing. And then we get to Genesis 9, the story of Noah. Noah where God essentially looks at all the earth, sees that every intention of man's heart is evil continuously. And what does God do in Genesis 9-1? What does this sound like? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's given Noah the exact same command that he gave Adam and Eve pre-fall. This is what you were designed to do. To create more images of God. And then we go down to Genesis 9, verses 6, 7 to 9, he said, And be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Who, who, who can name Noah's children? He had three sons. Is that did I put that on the sheet? Oh, dang it! So close. If you did that without looking, awesome, awesome. And we know that story, right? Ham is the one that becomes cursed. He looked at the nakedness of his father, and Shem and Japheth were blessed. And then we see this genealogy that ends in Genesis eleven. Shem becomes the father of Abraham. And then as the, the book talks about, and as where he kind of starts, is Abraham is given this promised blessing, right? Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'm going to jump ahead for my notes. I will bless you. Shem, the son of Shem, I will bless you. Those that curse you, I will dishonor. The sons of Ham, the sons of Cain. And from you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The sons of Japheth. So here, clearly in Genesis at the end of Genesis 11, and the beginning of Genesis 13, we see this biblical vision for all humanity as descendants of these three sons. Of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Can I ask you a quick Absolutely, Mr. Larry. Yep. Yes. Yep, it's almost as, as all the, in the biblical narrative. It's almost as a recreation. Yep, absolutely. And then in Genesis seventeen, this is where we find the promises of God to Abraham that it will be through a son that he will receive these blessings. In Genesis seventeen one through eight, and then again in and and fifteen sixteen, this is when he actually promises. Sarah will bear you a son. And if you have your Bibles open, Genesis 17, verse 16, this is how it ends. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God is adding to the promise. So from Genesis 17, 16... God's people have now been promised that someday there will be a king that comes from this lineage, that comes from this offspring. Then we get to Exodus chapter 1, right? God's people are out of God's land. Although they went there because God told them to go there. And then we find out that God sees his people, that this, these, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Israel, are in Egypt. And this is what God tells them to do. Or this is what they're doing. And Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all the generations. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The people, although they're in Egypt, are still fulfilling the mandate that God has given his people. Right? And in Exodus 4, we see that God actually calls Israel, the people of Israel for the first time, no longer identified as an individual, but identified as a people that they are his firstborn son. The people. So from this people... This seed, this offspring, will come. And then we can jump all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we have this promise to David. And I'm going to just jump around real quick, but I put, this is why I put this in your notes. God promised to D- David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me your throne shall be established forever god is continually to build on his covenant promises david is a king right genesis 1716 was fulfilled a king came from sarah and her offspring and now god is expanding this promise is not only will you be a king, but from this line, this seed who still is to come, will come, and I will establish his kingdom forever. You guys know where I'm going? We have two genealogies in the Gospels. Genealogy of Matthew. Who remembers who? who Matthew, where Matthew goes? He starts with who? The genealogy, who does it start with? Abraham, Abraham, right? So Matthew, writing to a Jewish readership, begins this narrative with Abraham. He connects Jesus to Abraham. Jesus is the promised seed, is what Paul says in Galatians 3. It's not seeds, but seed, singular, We also have a genealogy in Luke's gospel in chapter 3. And who does Luke connect Jesus to? All the way back to Adam. Luke is writing to a Gentile readership. And Luke connects this tie of Jesus all the way to Adam, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. So from the very beginning of the gospels, of the New Testament, we are invited to read all of Scripture through this hermeneutic. The people of Israel should always have been waiting for this offspring, for this one, to come to crush the head of the serpent. And throughout redemptive history, throughout history, we find out more and more about this son. And every good Israelite should have been asked the question, is this the one who will redeem us from our sin? If you wonder why Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets that come after the exile are so worried about the line of the king, it's because they knew that the promised one was coming from the lineage of David. They were expecting the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so today we have in the New Testament, we're actually given three categories of people, right? We have the Jews, God's people, the seed of Abraham, those who find their lineage from Abraham. Then we have Gentiles, right? Those who don't have the covenant promises, but who still function as image bearers of God. These are the children of of Japheth Japheth of Noah's son and then we have those who do not become God's people who are the cursed ones who do not ask for forgiveness from their sins and who actively always rebel and tried to conflict with God's redemptive purposes. We have the sons of Cain. Questions? said we want a king cuz the other nations want a king. It didn't seem like it was his will. He said, "Well, okay, you know." Yeah. Yeah, so, um, that's a really good question, and that's also knowing the answer before they're actually given the answer, right? So, judges ruled as kings. I mean, they they showed sovereign leadership over the people. The nation or the people of Israel asked for a king not because they wanted someone to rule over them as righteous and as God was ruling over them, right? The reason that God didn't want to give them the king is because they should have been acting as though God was their king. But they wanted a king because they wanted to be like the nations, right? They wanted a king because they didn't like the theocracy that God was establishing for them. And so they asked for a king, and I mean, that's a great question. And as we're going to look at today in our sermon, God can even use the sin of his people to bring about his redemptive will. So, if they never asked for a king? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's what we have to say. We don't know, right? Well, we are given a clue, though, Tyler, right? In Deuteronomy 17, where God gives them laws about future kings. So it seems like that was always going to be part of the plan of him in the land. At some point, there was going to be Yeah, I mean, that's Genesis seventeen sixteen. The, the king's coming. The line of Judah, right? That's how Genesis 49 ends. That's question. Why do we have this period of the judges if always to be a, king? To be a king? Uh, That's when I would just uh, appeal to redemptive history, Ethan, and just say God was not prepared to reveal himself in that way yet. I mean, the time of the judges wasn't a great time, Right. <laughs> the downward spiral, but guess what? The time of the kings wasn't a great time either. I mean, it took three generations before they put that in the toilet, right? You had this, you may mention it, three groups of people, this is kind of a loaded question for What is the status of the Jews? Of those who are the Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, David, that that's Jesus taught very clearly that um I mean so John the Baptist comes, right? And he says, You claim to be sons of Abraham, but God can make these rocks <laughs> sons of Abraham, right? He, he can make them worship you. Um and Paul gives us a very clear picture in Galatians two, three, and then again in Romans, um, that my understanding of that is that True Israelites are those who come to faith in Jesus. Their circumcision becomes uncircumcision because circumcision is a sign of the heart and faith in God's promises. I just find Romans 9 a lot of I mean, one of the most difficult passages I to understand. understand. <laughs> so then I it again yeah. And I go, What, <laughs> what is that? Yeah, yeah, join the club. Join the club. So we have this, this seed and this offspring we have, and, and why, why I think it's so important for us to see this is um, as I said earlier, I mentioned earlier um, there's a difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology and dispensational theology says that at the, at the end of the Old Testament with Jesus coming God severed his promises to Israel and started over with a new people. They don't see this seed as something continually, as Paul says, that those who have faith become children of Abraham. They see these two groups as two distinctive groups and not one people, ultimately saying that there are two different ways of being redeemed, the Old Testament way, in the New Testament way. I'm sure that's clear as mud. And what do you call it Yeah, yeah, dispensational theology. <laughs> Which dispensations aren't bad as I'm, we're going to go to the confession in just a little bit and dispensations aren't bad, but dispensational theology r- reads this narrative of scripture in two distinct ways. Yeah, so um, I don't know about the dual covenant part of that, David. I'm I'm not as versed in dispensational theology as I probably should be. Um, But what I do know a dispensationalist will say is that God's covenant promises to his people have not yet been fulfilled. And that's that's why they're looking for a reestablishment of the sacrificial system. But we would agree with Paul that all of the promises find their yes and amen in Christ. Right. This is why last week I was talking about how is an Old Testament saint saved and how is a New Testament saint saved the same way through Jesus. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and the reason I keep bringing up this hermeneutic language is that functionally, a dispensationalist reads the scriptures differently. They don't use the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of the covenant to guide them in the reading. They see it as broken up pieces that have no continuity to another, or they do have some, but not as much as a, someone who believes in covenant theology would affirm. Great. Well, so the next section is the last Adam. Uh, and if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians fifteen, forty-five through 49. And I, I put, this is great because it's next, because it's following this. Luke connects Jesus to Adam. He's, he's the fulfillment. He's the promised seed. He's the offspring, as Paul says. Um, and then um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and then Romans 5 connects Jesus to Adam um, in a way that if you don't understand the covenant, you have a really hard time of under- really understanding what Paul is saying. So 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five to 49 Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. Living. Lord, help me. A living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As as was man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is a man from heaven, so also are those who are in heaven. Just as we have borne image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the Son of Man. So, Paul is describing these two covenant heads. Right? You are either in Adam, or you are in Christ, the man of heaven. These are the, the distinctions that he's making. You are a man of earth or a man of heaven. Now turn with me to Romans five, twelve through 21. 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, and over those, sinning, and over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who, who was to come. Put that in your memory bank. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, grace of, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed, one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because one's, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one tra- trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin came through Adam. In Adam all sinned. Right? We call this original sin. We are born as sons and daughters of Adam. We are born into this unrighteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become sons of God. Through Christ, the trespass is removed. We are moved from the realm of unrighteousness into the realm of righteousness. Now, Romans 5 comes after Romans 3. We all know that righteousness only comes through faith. He's not teaching a type of universalism. And so Paul's making very clear the, the covenant of works, as Blake talked about last last week, the covenant of works is still in play. If you are in your sins, you are lost and condemned of your sin because of Adam. But God offers a covenant of grace for all those who come through faith in Jesus Christ to become sons of Christ, to be sons of God, to have your trespass forgiven. So, and here's, here's a big contention that people come up with is they don't like original sin, right? We, we don't like that someone else's work is counted and accredited to us. The problem with that is if we don't like representation, then we cannot receive the redemption that is offered in Christ because it's the forgiveness of grace that we find in the second Adam that we receive forgiveness not only for our original sin but of our actual sin, of the sin that we actually commit. So, Jesus is the better and last Adam. All of humanity, so we're talking about the seed, all of humanity is either in Adam or they're in Christ. You either found condemned for your trespass or you found righteous because of the righteousness imputed to you by Jesus Christ through faith. Types and shadows. Who can name a type, or who knows what a type and shadow is, right? You can If you have your Westminster Confession of Faith, yeah, so open up in your Westminster Confession of Faith. Trinity Hymnal, we're going to go to chapter 7 of the Covenants. And Brandon, this is kind of what we were talking about two weeks ago. Chapter seven, um, paragraph. Oh, uh, let's start in four. Somebody have a page number? Yeah, eight fifty-two. Actually, no. Let's just go to f- section five. So, chapter seven, section five. The covenant was different, differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. So Old Testament, New Testament. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinance delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that, that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit, in, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remissions of sin and eternal salvation, and it's called the Old Testament, chapter or section six. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinance in which this covenant is dispensed are the, is the preaching of the word. Are the preaching of the word is the preaching of the word. Mary, help me. Is it sure. are. Is that the subject the ordinance? In which, yes. And the, the ordinance are the, preaching yes. of the So it's the See, in which. Are, the okay. Is is there, is there, uh, That's why I need you, Miss Mary. <laughs> are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in the fullness, evidence, And spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and it's called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So, types and shadows is this idea that God communicated his redemptive purposes and means in ways that pointed to something greater. whether it be the Paschal Lamb, the promises, the prophecies, the sacrificial system. Here's another one, prophets, priests, and kings. These are all types and shadows ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's as if the Old Testament is training God's people of how to interpret and understand who God is, ultimately to find the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the perfect prophet. Lamb that was slaughtered, the one who was circumcised on the cross, is actually what Paul says in the book of Colossians. All pointing to Christ. But they were in themselves sufficient and efficacious because of the one who promised them that they would. And then we get to the Mediator um, as the last section of our book, Christ as Mediator, um, 16, 17, and 18. Um, I don't have time um, to do this, but praise Jesus um, for the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll say that all day long, and I'm unashamedly. Um, Chapter 8 is of Christ the Mediator. I don't know if you remember, but through Advent... We didn't do the um, Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed. We worked through Christ as mediator, chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because essentially, our mediator, right, that's what we celebrated at Advent. The mediator come, came. Sorry, Ms. Mary. And I have on here, which one was I supposed to look at? Oh, um, so chapter 8, are you guys still on page 853 of the Confession? Chapter 8, section 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successfully from the beginning of the world and in... And by those promises, types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same forever. That's the hermeneutic of covenant theology. This is what we believe at this church is the hermeneutic to understand the big picture of all the scriptures. That's why we can easily preach from the Old Testament. Because what God was offering his people was efficacious. It was sufficient. Because it, what laid behind it were the promises of God, ultimately to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is the hermeneutic, the, the, the lens by which we should read all of scriptures. We should get excited when we read the Old Testament because we have something better. We have the one that they were waiting for. And as Peter says in his, in his first epistle, something that the prophets and the angels longed to see, we have that in Jesus. I've run out of time. I've got to pray, and then you can come up to me afterwards if you have questions. Father,